0: Hey, it's Rebecca. And before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to remind everyone to check out my new six-part investigative podcast, The Dropout. It is a fascinating story about Elizabeth Holmes, once the world's youngest female self-made billionaire. She's now facing up to 20 years in prison for criminal charges to which she's pleaded not guilty. This is truly one of the most fascinating stories I've covered over the course of my career, And I'm really excited to share this three year long investigation with you. We put so much time and energy into this podcast, The Dropout. So please subscribe, rate, and review. It's called The Dropout, it's available now, and we have new episodes every Wednesday. All right, here's this week's episode of No Limits.
1: There's not a lot of great playbooks on this, like here's how you build a company. Um, So you're just really trying to learn as fast as you can, evolve as as fast as you can. You're working off of really imperfect data. You always have to find someone who knows more than you and ask them pointed questions to get to solutions.
0: From ABC, it's No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game. Trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there, and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, have you ever had an idea and thought, that would be a great business? I know I have, and I'm sure a lot of you have too. But for most people, those great ideas, well, they just stay as ideas. On today's episode, you're going to meet Angela Sutherland and Evelyn Rusley, two women who are on a completely different path, but veered onto a new course to take their idea and actually turn it into a reality. In this episode, they walk us through that process from conception to quitting their jobs to bringing their company, Yumi, an organic baby food delivery company to life. Here are Angela and Evelyn. Angela Sutherland and Evelyn Rusley, welcome to No Limits. For having us Thank on, yeah. I'm thrilled to have you here with us. There's a lot to get into about the company you've created together, Yumi. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the backstory, how you two met, also your personal backstories. Angela, your family, your mom came here as a refugee from Vietnam with $50 from she, the Red yes, Cross, yes. Evelyn, your family immigrated here from Indonesia, yes, in the 70s. So, you're both. First generation, you've both seen this country, and uh, and I'm sure you have some interesting thoughts on that. But I want to talk about the company first, about how you two created Yumi.
2: So what's the what's the birth story of Yumi? Um, Well, yeah, I think it started with a couple things. I think you know, we back up into our careers. I was not thinking about starting a baby food company. I was in private equity for a long time before that investment banking. I always, it's really good, like, training wheels. It, like, like forces you to do things in a time crunch, like very strict deadlines, you know, like, you know, push beyond limits. But, like, the actual love of making a deck, I don't think anyone has. A deck is like a
0: PowerPoint document (laughs) that has a bunch of Excel uh, information to back it up. So, yeah.
2: Yeah, I don't think anyone loved that part. But, you know, so it was good, like, training wheels, but then I got out of that, obviously. How long did you stay in banking? Just two years. I was like, I'm doing the requisite amount of time, (laughs) and then I'm gone. And so for me, it was more really just about, like, I wanted to learn about companies. And so I did a management program at Toyota, which is similar to GE, which rotates you around different, um, like, different departments. And then I went to private equity because I couldn't find... A lot of jobs that would let a 20 something year old run their company, but in private equity they do because it's just just debt. So, what was really great about that experience though was that I learned like anything from like seafood distribution to hardwood flooring to industrial brush makers that there are a lot of similarities when it comes to business. And that I think that it really lowers the barrier in someone's mind about like, you know, what, what it takes to start a company or what it takes to like operate a company. You know, it's like once you start seeing it, over it's like pattern rec- recognition and so for me that's what my career was and then like that's when I met Evelyn But we were, we were friends before this. Evelyn yeah, no. you were a
1: journalist. I was so we joke that we are different sides of the brain so Angela was a math major and I was the English major and I was a journalist for almost a decade before uh, transitioning to this new life but I was at The New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, covering technology and covering startups. And we actually met uh, with through my now fiance, but um, he introduced us and it was actually before we started dating. He was like, Angela's really special to me. She's one of the smartest people I know. And you should be really nice to her because at some point you two are going to start a company. And I was still very much a journalist then. And I Were was, you
0: interested at all at that point in starting a company? Had you told him you wanted to create a company? No,
1: I mean, I, I think, you know, we had talked in very broad strokes about what our future careers might be and how that might evolve. And I always loved the concept of making impact at scale. And you do that as a journalist and you do that as an entrepreneur. But I hadn't talked to him about the brass tacks of what it would be like to, to start a company. That's where it was going. And so it was very prescient on his end. But he was right. We ended up
2: starting company. And yeah, I always love that
1: because he never told me that.
2: So I, was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what if I was News mean to, to her? Me. <laughs> yeah. But so it actually, so how it all unfolded was, you know, I was pregnant at my job and I started doing what, you know, most mothers do, which is like research, think about it, ask everybody, you know, about pregnancy about motherhood. I was reading books at night, uh, researching. Like, I think our generation also takes to the Internet. So, you know, we were, I was, like, on every single site that could exist. And I uncovered that there was this very strong correlation between nutrition and wellness, as particularly in a period of life called the Thousand Days. Like, so much so that this publication called The Lancet made this landmark study about 10 years ago that, like, tied what your kid gets nutritionally to their outcomes developmentally
0: so from the moment they're born yeah. those first 1000 days of life it's actually
2: conception so like from conception to two those first 1000 days of life like what you know that's why you just take prenatal vitamins you know the folic acid and you know your neural tube like development it's actually one to one it's really amazing how much nutrition they need to develop and it's because your baby's brain's growing to 80% of its adult size by the end of age two. So that much neural plasticity, that much change requires a lot of vitamins and minerals and, like, you know, nutrition.
0: Not to freak anyone out. Yeah, no parent. pressure. No <laughs> pressure.
2: And I, that's exactly what happened. I was like, this is so freaky. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I grew up in the Midwest, and I was always taught, like, kids are going to be fine. They have the rest of their lives to worry about it. Like, you know, like, they'll be on a diet when they're – adults like I I'm going to like I can't eat the cupcake but give the cupcake to the baby and just to know that it was exactly the opposite was for the first time I'd ever heard of that and I think what was so stark about that was like that when I looked when I looked around at like the marketplace and what was happening in food I felt that there was nothing that was actually nutritionally sound everything was high in fructose it was shelf stable older than your baby and there was nothing that really spoke to me as, like, a millennial and someone concerned about my child's well-being. And it's then that I started speaking with Evelyn about this whole, like, gap in the market.
1: Yeah, and I actually come from a whole family in healthcare, And my sister, she was also having her first child for the first time. Um, And she's a doctor, married to a doctor. And she just turned to me and she was like, honestly, like, I don't know the first thing of what to feed my kid. And she's like, I took one nutrition class all of med school and then on the other side of my family I have my dad and he was a PhD in chemistry he worked at some of the biggest pharma companies so Hoffman LaRoche and like Merck when we were growing up in New Jersey and he's now you know pre-diabetic and he's overweight and you know I go home and I clean out the fridge because I'm like this has all this sugar in it and I think
0: he loves it when you visit I know (laughs) he hates it
1: hates it But I think it's just so fascinating. It's just really eye-opening in in talking to Angela, talking about what are the convenient options and how they're falling so short of what kids need, particularly during this important period.
0: I mean, that's really what it comes down to is convenience, I think, for a lot. I mean, cost is a big, big, big factor as well. But if it's not, you talk about, um, you brought up the point, Angela, about a lot of the the baby food that's shelf stable. So what's on the shelf is older than the kid. Right. But that's what's easy,
2: right? And I think that was exactly what was like, you know, so like stark to me was that I could order a salad to my house or literally anything I wanted to my door, and it'll get there within the hour. But I couldn't get fresh baby food. I could only get this one option. But of course, I was going to need that option because I was a working mom, and you know, more and more our generation works, more and more women cook less. Like, and I think that the idea that. We have less options at a time when you actually need the most options was really the biggest, like, you know, no brainer for me. I I, I think, you know, if you really like even think about when you start feeding a kid, so like six months, you know, if, if you're working, you're back at work. So to compare, like combine, it's like I'm back at work. I'm trying to like, you know, breastfeed or make formula and figure out my life. And on top of that, make three solid meals a day and know exactly what they needed for like in nutrition is just such a high bar. And because there's so much at stake, because there's actually so much that gets developed in this period of time, I thought it was just remiss of us as a generation to not address it. And I think that one of the things that we really circled around was that that it's not just a product, not just this convenient product, but where is that trusted source? Like, where is that? Mm -hmm. You know, like- who do we trust nowadays that like would tell us that your kid needs this and believe it? Because, you know, there's all these old legacy brands that I just don't believe anymore. And I think, you know, what we set out to do was be that trusted source. Mm -hmm.
0: When you, so you have the idea, you were both still at work in other jobs. Yes. Yes. How long were you in the other jobs post having the other idea and what did you have in place before you quit?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. So I actually, this is one of the things I talk about a lot is that you should always find a really great co-founder because it's almost like you jump off the cliff together. You know, and so when people ask me that, it wasn't a lot. It wasn't, we had, we didn't have like funding yet. We didn't have you know, this entire. I mean, it was a matter of weeks. It was a matter of weeks. It's like, you, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it was. So
0: from that first conversation, Angela, where you go to Evelyn and say, I have this idea, it's only a matter of weeks.
2: It's a matter of weeks we decided this is a real viable business.
0: And, and then, what made you
2: think that? Did
0: you test the waters by asking other people? Did you do research online? Did you talk to any? I know you didn't have money lined up, but did you talk to people who might eventually give you money?
1: Uh, no, there wasn't questions. a lot lined up. I mean, yeah. we definitely did a lot of research. And yes. I mean, even Angela, she went through and put all of the skews of like what was in the grocery store into like Excel
0: spreadsheets. Did you walk to, like, through the aisle for that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I
2: did. And but I also went online. I, like, I went deep into figuring out like, how bad is it? Yeah. You know, not just like, do I feel bad about it? But really, how bad is it? And then once I found that, like, they really were nutritionally deficient, you know, like, over 50% of them get most of the calories from fructose, from fruit sugar. There's really nothing in these pouches except, you know, maybe, like, applesauce. Like, that's great when you're in a pinch, but that does not, like, feed a child. That doesn't, like, help a child grow for their life. And so, you know, once I found that this really was bad, we really circled around, like, market. Like, does this exist? Should this exist? What's happening trend-wise? Millennials are having babies, like, later in their lives because we all put off having kids until we're, like, you know, financially ready or better, like, you know, like, stable in your jobs. And so, like, you're more educated. And so now you're asking more questions and you want more things. And so we did market analysis and sort of really came together and said, should this exist? And are Mm -hmm. we the ones? Yeah. And it was that. It wasn't this, like, you know, again, how much money is it going to take or how long is it going to take? I think it, a lot of that is just like you, it's almost better that you don't know, you
1: it's
2: like you got to just jump.
0: Because, so you jump yeah. together, yeah. Yes. Then what?
1: Then we set about building a business, right? And then you kind of go through, and we did kind of like a initial product line just to get some feedback from customers. We picked a handful of zip codes in Los Angeles and started delivering food. And we worked with nutritionists, and we worked with doctors in order to make better formulations of our food and and as well as with chefs so that it was super palatable and tasty.
0: Were you making the food in your kitchen or how were you creating the food?
1: Well, we hired chefs. We did have a, a kitchen for the test pilot program. But, you know, it's it's it was a sprint in terms of like doing all of the research and figuring out how much capital, running the financial model and all of that. But there's a yeah, lot. Of that's when the in. banking helped. I knew
2: it would come <laughs> in handy one day. But,
0: the thing about food that's difficult is it's perishable. Yeah. So, it, you know. That whole shelf stable supply is there in part because it's an easier business model.
2: A thousand percent. And I think that is what's so great about where we are today, like as a generation. So you don't have to be in retail to touch a consumer. So we started with direct to consumer. And I think that, like, it it does a a couple things. One, it allows us to really offer the best product. Like, you can get for, like, you know, very close to the same pricing. Like, it's like a fresh product versus a shelf stable product. And if you have to, like, stop and think, like, why would a chicken cost $2? It's because it lives on the shelf for two years, you know? And so, like, it shouldn't cost that much. You know, like, it should be much more than that. But we can offer fresh product because now we're, like, cutting out the middleman. It doesn't have to live. We don't have to, like, create excess inventory. We don't have the waste from that. And so it, we are able to offer a premium product that's much cheaper than you can otherwise make, like have at a store. And then on top of that, we have contact with you. And I think you know one of the biggest question marks and why we did a beta was to make sure that like this is a product that hits you whether or not you cook, don't cook, like you're you, you want to learn about it, you don't want to learn about it. Like we wanted to know everything about this consumer. And what we found was that it's almost it's like it's every mom. It's every mom wants to do the right thing. You know, it's they want to know more. So even if they're cooking at home, just knowing that when your kid crawls, their bones support calcium for the, like, they support weight for the first time. And that means that they're going to need more calcium because their bones densify, just like a runner whose bones densify when running. And just knowing that parents would write in and say, I love it because I go to a restaurant and I'll order things with more calcium. And so we already know that you're like clicking. There's something there that like parents need to know and want to know more about that you can't get at retail. Like, and so it's not just the, price point of retail that's so like prohibitive it's the idea that we actually get so much more now as a generation that like from direct to consumer
1: yeah i mean and and to back it up a little bit um in terms of like what you get as a consumer of yumi is you know every week you get a delivery to your door and we curate those meals based on your kids like age and development and we also curate content And so it's really exciting for us to kind of watch parents, like, as that journey unfolds, they can really understand that connection, association between what they're doing and what they're feeding their kid and, you know, what they, you know, the health outcomes. So, like, they really feel like they actually play this active role, like they take some control back, you know, from the crazy process and the chaos of being a parent. I think that's what's so fun. We talk about the concepts of brains are built and not born, and so... As a parent, you can actually have more control than maybe you thought you did.
2: Yeah, and like I think you know we see that sometimes when you talk about like you know read to your kid every night or like and you know they'll have a bigger vocabulary. And so you know that brains are built, but when you start pairing it with nutrition, when you start realizing it can come from multiple ways, like how you feed your kid or what you're doing with your kid, and you realize how active a role you actually have, it. It, I, I think like lifelong lovers of food and nutrition and the idea that like your kid it shouldn't just be this like annoying process of mealtime
0: you you have the idea yeah you quit your jobs how soon after quitting the jobs did you do the beta test
2: well immediately yeah i I think what's funny so we we gave notice Mm -hmm. because we're polite (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. Two weeks. yeah. Okay. um i think it was a month actually like but it, but it, we gave notice and in that period of time like i'm building up the financial model we know how much we need to raise you know we're raising money talking to investors so you
0: were raising money as soon as you quit
2: as soon as we quit. yeah
0: and were you raising friends and family money at that point yes okay so it, and how much money did you raise initially
2: it trickled in i'd yeah. actually say So, like over yeah. the course of the year we raised up to about i think a million dollars mm-hmm. but it just trickled in mm-hmm. and what was really amazing about like not knowing is that you have it's just the two of us you know there's not this crazy overhead of you know like rent and other things it's just the two of us so we really can control for how many things are reproducing how big is this beta like what are we looking for like what can we do with this information and it went so fast because like It went gangbusters, I like to say, because everybody wanted it. It was like we had this like a huge amount of customers trying to get it and we were trying to limit the beta. You know, it's just so it was just information gathering. But because of that, we were able to raise a real round because people just it went so viral. I mean, people stayed on forever. They like, like I think I think it really just shows how desperate the, like these people were for something like this in the market.
0: And were you pregnant while you were fundraising as well?
2: Yeah, so that was actually for our, our official. So, like the friends and family, I just had a baby, and then when we were raising for our official seed, I was pregnant. Yeah,
0: and I I understand you did your uh, you did your meetings as Skype calls.
2: Yes, <laughs> so we had this very clever way. I think we, this we for like, the initial call for the initial call. Yeah. So we we like it. It helps screen out the idea like that you don't know that I'm pregnant because there's obviously a lot of bias around the idea of like, am I going to be at work? Or you know, how dedicated are you going to be? And there's all these things. So we just like to remove all bias, we're just going to Skype from the head up. <laughs> like it's-
0: and how did investors respond to the idea initially?
2: Well, I think it was
1: mixed. It was interesting. You know, some people, I think those particularly who were parents or who understood the process and the pain points of feeding a child, like they understood it more easily. I think there were some who were, you know, questioned it. You know, they questioned whether or not uh, this generation would really come out in droves for this. I think there was one meeting where literally we were facing a room full of men and they, you know, had this conclusion or thought that they talked to all the women in their life and the women in their life like to cook. And so all women must like to cook every single meal for their children. And, you know, it was one of those things where I just looked at Angela and we had no proper response. Like, yeah. I, you know, we <laughs> yeah. I guess we see the world differently. Yes. So yeah.
0: <laughs> Did that did they end up not investing then? Yeah, we the, also
2: definitely turn down investments, too. If you mm-hmm. just didn't get like if, if there was an alignment, I, I think it's like really interesting when you do fundraising, like basically what sifts out. I think what we've noticed or what I, I, I can like at least contribute in the things that I've noticed on fundraising is that like, it's very easy to say no. It's very hard to find yes. the yes. And so when you were with people that like look for the yes and like are like, you know, prodding you with the right questions, like that's what you're looking for in an investor, that's what you're looking for in the world, that's what makes someone smart. You know, it's like it's a, you can say no to a million things all day long. You know, and I think so we always look for investors that were gonna like prod us, like make us better. Like tell like Ask the questions that you should be asking. Make it harder for us, but not like the people that are just like outright dismissive of the idea that like this shouldn't exist because women love cooking. I mean, even if you want to invest, that's not the investor for us, you know, I think <laughs> is ultimately how that goes. But you know, I think we, we really, I, I think we got lucky in our, in our round because everything came together so fast because the numbers were so good that it was very hard to deny that something like this should exist in the world uh, i think that it was just then a matter of who like who's our investor
0: <laughs> what's been beyond getting money for it what's been the biggest challenge hear more from angela sutherland and evelyn rusley after a quick word from our sponsor
3: so you just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? OK, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey. And every morning, we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight.
2: Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling.
3: All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.
0: Mm -hmm. What's been beyond getting money for it? What's been the biggest challenge? I think,
1: you know, I mean, there's several. I think one of the things I've learned from being formerly a journalist who studied startups to now in it, very much in it, is that when you're on the outside looking in, you can imagine doing any one discrete task. Well, you know, I can figure out payroll or I can hire someone for performance marketing, whatever it might be. And then you realize that once you're in the position of being an entrepreneur, like, holy moly, do you have to make a thousand plus decisions and hope that you're doing them pretty well? And I think like that kind of pressure uh, just in with like the absolute amount of volume of what you have to do is like is quite incredible. And I didn't properly appreciate that. So there's many things I would say that are hard. I think like you know, you want to make sure you're you're hiring well and hiring, you know, pretty fast too because you're you're growing like there's a lot that is on the roadmap that you have to catch up to and get to. Like you're literally like there's often that analogy that you're building a plane mid-flight and that's definitely what it feels like.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I think that exactly what Evelyn says. I think we we joked is that when you're at a big company and the stapler doesn't work and you're mad at the stapler, <laughs> like you're like, <laughs> oh, it's and then, right. when it's your company. You're like I ordered that stapler. <laughs> this is gonna it, you like you actually make so many decisions um, at the end of the day. Like you and it, obviously as it gets bigger, bigger, it's not the staple anymore. But yet you are still making so many decisions. You are moving the company forward, and it like comes back to you. And so that that really, you know, was like a huge. I I, I don't explain it other than like shock, <laughs> you know, like, it was like very, very eye opening to get to a place like, I mean, I was doing distressed debt. There was like solvable things. You know, I, I knew how to fix operations. I knew what to do. I knew what I had, like forms I needed to fill out and how to do this. Or, like, how There to were processes. It. There were processes in place. You're making the process. And so I think, you know, that was really, you know, something that I like, was eye opening for me. But I did yeah. the hardest thing other than that is people. I, I still I think mm-hmm. we both think that people is definitely the one. That... Yeah.
1: And also I think like no, not knowing what you should know is like first time founders, right? Like there's there's not a lot of great playbooks on this. Like here's how you build a company. Let let's walk you through everything from legal to like the you know, hiring or whatever it is. And I think like there's a lot of first time founder tax. You're like, oh, like if I could rewind the clock, I'd do it this way now. Um, So you're just really trying to learn as fast as you can evolve as as fast as you can as a leader in your company. And to be honest, like ask the right questions. And I think that's, if I was to say, like, you know, people always ask me like, well, is it helpful to be a journalist? How did that carry over? And I think like, as a journalist, you always know that you're working off of really imperfect data. And so you always have to push like questioning, you always have to Find someone who knows more than you and ask them pointed questions to get to solutions. And that's been helpful. Yeah, I think that's
0: right. That's a great point. Um, One of the things I try really hard here to do is to not over glamorize entrepreneurship or founding a company. I 100% support people like you who are doing it, but I recognize that it is not especially when it appears a lot in the mainstream press. And, you know, we see the highlighted examples of those who are incredibly successful and the multi-billion dollar, million dollar companies and all of that. And, you know, I think it's, I like to highlight the reality of the situation here. Mm. Um, we had the women from Cuyana. Do you know mm-hmm. them at yeah. all? So they were here and they had flown in also from the West Coast. Yeah. So here's a little background, folks. Angela, flew in on the red eye so you've been basically been in transit since
2: last night at 9 p.m <laughs> i've been in transit because my flight was four hour delayed and then i also switched airports to get on the plane to get to this podcast this morning
0: <laughs> <laughs> and you're going to be flying back on the last the flight last out flight of new out. york tonight that's back right to the west coast how typical
2: is that of your life I think it's like fairly typical. I think, and the reason why we were talking about like the red, like the red eyes versus not, is like it's actually very difficult to lose a day. Uh, So like I don't have a day to lose. We have so much to do, and so much depends on like me being available or a decision that needs to be made. And I don't have multiple days to lose so would i have loved to spend the night but then the next day if i fly home you lose time you know it's like i'll be gone in the day there's just so many calculations that go into this but i think it becomes fairly typical because you realize it because sort of what we just said before but it falls on our shoulders a lot of decisions fall on our shoulders and so like i don't have that day to lose for people depending on me Plus you
0: have two babies. Unless I have
2: two babies. I know. And I have to say, like, watching Angela, because
0: I don't have kids yet,
1: um, but I will someday. And I think, like, Angela is my role model in terms of, like, what kind of mother I'd want to be. And what I find so, I think, inspiring is that, yes, she's, like, working these crazy hours, but she fights time with her kids and there are just certain moments like where I know I'm not going to bother Angela right now because she's like putting the kids there like these sacred moments that she has with her husband who I also love amazing man and her children and it's just I think it's really cool to see that but you have to fight for that right it's like fighting yeah. for air it's fighting for those minutes and it's just it's not glamour if people think we just sit around all day and just like oh everything's up and to the right it's so easy that's just not what it is. It literally takes like blood, sweat, and tears. like, People ask me all the time, like, well, like, do you think you'll be a serial entrepreneur after this? Like, how many businesses do you have in you? And I'm like, uh, and I got one. I got one because I know it's probably deducted about 10 years from my life. I mean, yeah. you, know, you look at presidents after four years and it's like, whoa, they just aged 20 years. And that's like us. <laughs> we that's like, us.
2: For sure. Yeah. Um,
1: and probably lots
2: of entrepreneurs. But they 100%. just take so much out of you. And I, I mean, I think on the like point of like you're saying, like the, what is like the brass t- like tax of this? Like, you know, you don't want to like, glamorize starting a company and like, how that is and I think what's what's funny it's like I I see it as both sides but I as Evelyn put it I I think you have to fight for it you have to want it so badly that like you'll bleed for it I mean when I was fundraising I was literally pumping in a car on like right before walking into a meeting pumping and like on a plane like bleeding just you're trying to do all the right things you know you're trying to like feed your kid raise money for a company you also, like, like you realize that the overhead, the salaries of people come from us. Like, we have to raise that money for them. Like, people depend on us. And so all these things, like, falls on our shoulders that you don't want to be the reason why it doesn't work. And that's, like, that's the tax of it. Except, I'd say, it's also what makes it so amazing. Like, and so what is so wonderful about starting a company and being passionate about it and doing that is because like I truly believe in it and if I'm going to spend time away from my kid or if I'm going to like you know bleed for something I want it to be like something I'm passionate about and so I know like there's the glamour part but I'm just saying that is what makes the glamour is how much you love it yeah I mean that's that's true I think that's like the bottom line it's like we
1: feel so lucky have something that makes us like so tired and so strained um but yeah I mean it's funny because like we'll do these like shots for marketing or for PR things and it looks like oh like we have everything together our nails are done our hair is done or whatever it is and I'm like you don't realize maybe there's five times a year where I like was able to like blow dry my hair, and that was one of them. Luckily,
2: this is a podcast. (laughs) You don't have to see that. You don't know. (laughs) Well, I I think about both
0: of you and your backstories and your spirit of fighting and just persevering through whatever comes at you. Evelyn, your parents immigrated here from Indonesia. You've talked about being an outsider. How -hmm. much of that do you think has shaped your drive?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I think it's from day one. I think when particularly with like the children of immigrants kind of experience, you know, you just know that they had to go through so much for you to be here. And when when I would go to Indonesia like every summer and then I, I worked for The New York Times out there covering everything from terrorism to avian influenza like several years ago, I was, you know, you, you talk to people of all walks of life. And I would always be very, like, aware that there's, like, not much that separates, like, me from the person on the street in Indonesia. You know, like, I, I think, like, nothing. And so when you're here and you're, like, this is such an amazing country, it's, like, every day. Like, you got to make it count, you know. And I think, like, th- that's why you fight for that. You fight to do well, whether it's, like, initially school and then do all the things to, like, make your parents proud. But then, you know, it's eventually to, like, live the life that you want given that you have such a short
0: life. Mm-hmm. And Angela, you're, I mean, you have, your mom came here with $50 from Vietnam.
2: Yes. So she actually left three days before Saigon fell. And I think what's in the very same vein is that she had nothing. So she worked, you know, for any job that she could possibly take. And she was very, very educated. She had a computer science degree. Um, She, you know, spoke multiple languages, French, English, Vietnamese, like, But she worked as a housekeeper um, when she first got here to put her younger brother through school. And, you know, she was with my dad and they she worked as a chip girl while he was working blackjack tables. You know, like they were just trying to make ends meet. And then she ended up creating a company that did very, very well in Michigan. And I think what it showed me was that it's. It's really about like the blood, sweat, and tears. It's about perseverance and like what they gave up, what like they chose to do for us. Like, you don't just let that go. And, you know, a, a really good friend of mine, uh, we talked about it. It's called an immigrant motor. Like, we have this little immigrant motor inside of <laughs> us. Like, right? and, um, it's like, I it's, love that. Yeah. It's like, I just can't turn it off. It's like knowing what they sacrificed, like that they, like went through so much just to give you a better life and it wasn't for them. And I think that's a lot of like what sometimes misconceptions are about immigration or they aren't doing it for themselves. Like they're doing it for their children or their children's children. And so their expectations aren't like they want to be where you are. They want their kids to have the opportunity and I wasn't going to let that go. And so I had to work really, really hard and, you know, go to the best schools and do the right things. And like, and they were also my biggest supporters. You know, when I started this company, like my mom was like the biggest supporter. She wanted me to take a chance because she knows it like, and that's another really awesome thing about immigrants is that they've taken so many chances. You move across the world, you know, they know that you can land on your feet, like you can make this happen. I did
0: wonder about that, though, because of the idea that your your families took on so much for you. And I I think about risk and I think a lot of people are apprehensive about creating companies because of the risk that's involved, especially if they have a job that Mm -hmm. is a sound opportunity for them. How did you think through that risk? And was that ever a concern for either of you? Yeah, I mean, it's always
1: scary, right? We had built up these careers in very different industries. And it's like, okay, now we're going to jump and we're going to go on a completely different path. Um, But I guess like the way I had done the calculation and thinking about it was I know I work hard enough that like if this all went to dust, I could work hard, build another career, you know, figure it out. Like I would find a way. You're going to bet on yourself. Yeah, I'm going to find a way to make ends meet, right? Like so if that's the worst case scenario, it's not that bad. So that, that was kind of how I looked at
2: it. I also, I felt like the same idea of like this like sort of like calculation in my mind. But I, I came from, I guess, like a more lucrative career, technically, than journalism.
1: <laughs> Which is <laughs> almost <my> a <favorite> great <laughs> career, yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> so I was the breadwinner in my family. And it was actually like a group decision. It was me, my husband. We we're talking about like, you know, me t- like, like stepping aside and what that's going to be like. And I think, you know, having the support of my family was a big part of that. Just like them saying like that they trust me. But you know, and maybe goes back to this immigrant motor. But like, I will not lose. Like, this won't happen. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think just knowing that, like, I'm going to make this work. This has to exist, and it should be us. Mm We're like, you know, like we want it the most. And so, I think knowing that and betting on yourself really it it makes the calculation easier. Mm -hmm. Because I think you know, I think one of the reasons why people are risk averse. Um, isn't really just money they think it is you know it comes down to a lot of like the like logistics of life you know what i mean like i, I joke that like i literally make enough money for my kids daycare <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, you know, it's like it's like you know paying for myself to be able to work but like i believe in it and i believe that this is going to be like yeah. great and so you're making that like so it's not about the money or you're like it's it's about like believing in yourself enough that this is going to be what you want it to be.
1: Yeah. And I remember we, we were talking about this and I didn't have kids yet, but I was imagining like having kids and that conversation, like putting them to bed and them ask me like, mom, like, what do you do? Why do you do it? And I realized that this was the answer and why we did this was the answer that I wanted to give. And so then it was like, you know, life is short. And I just know that right now I'm in a period where I can work long hours. I can like, really redline it on some days and so like if i'm gonna take a chance at any other point in my life like it
0: has to be now how do you organize things angela like if you're flying out in the middle of the night and flying back in the middle of
2: the night yeah i mean a lot of logistics (laughs) I, i have a really great husband he's really helpful and he'll be there i also have like a lovely nanny i think as a generation we've moved away from our families. Um, by and large, we used to live within like a 15-mile radius. Now I live across the coast. Also, my mother passed away. So I have a nanny that I love a lot. So she's very, very helpful in there. I, but I would say that it's actually something that like, I mean, that Jeff Bezos said that I thought was so interesting about this was that you have to go to the place that gives you the most energy. Like, So if work is giving you the most energy and you feel energized every moment that you're doing it, then be there and stay there and do it but if you're feeling burned out and you're what giving you energy is your kids and like your family then be there because like you don't want to be the person in the room that sucks energy from the room and i was like that to me resonates a lot so whether it becomes from like how do i organize this day to how to organize this week i try to think of like i want to show up like i want to be there i want to have energy I don't want to just check the box. Like I want you to like actually like engage. And I think that you're going to win out of that and I'm going to win out of that. And so like so when it came to like thinking about like, for instance, like the schedule, I was like the best schedule for me would be put my kids to bed. Like if I was able to put my kids to bed, I'd feel like I'd seen them. I love them. And then that's why I took a red eye. But like if like it wasn't that what gave me energy, I would have taken an earlier flight and slept overnight here. So it's just sort of just deciding in that moment like, where am I going to get this energy from? What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way?
1: Hmm.
2: Hmm. <laughs> if you're
0: stumped on that one, we'll go. Okay. Yes. Okay. okay. <laughs> Worst advice you've received along the way. Wind.
2: This one I have. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, we, there was a lot of advice, I think, you know, being female founders. So there was a ton of advice at the very beginning about what women should be founding in general. Like the type of the type of companies Mm -hmm. that women should be founding or like and, you know, Evelyn mentioned one where someone was like, maybe you shouldn't do this at all because women love cooking. But it was also the idea that like women know, you know, these things well because we're women, as opposed to thinking this is a, you know, like multi-billion dollar industry not started by women, you know, like that and not run by women, that, you know, Gerber sold for $5.5 billion. Like there's, these are huge industries, but that there was advice around the idea that like women should do what women know best. Like, and so the fact that I was a math person or an operations, that like maybe my real strength could be like branding or marketing. And so it's really just like that, that, that type of advice, like the women gender rolled advice, I think was probably the worst advice. That we've ever
0: gotten. What did you think when you heard it?
2: I think it, it's sometimes like things are so offensive that you don't process it. Uh, you know, <laughs> you, you think that they're being sincere. I think they are being sincere mm-hmm. and polite. Trying like, to give advice. They're, they're trying, trying to give advice. And so, and I actually also think that that's something that, why it's important to hear women founders and, out there talking is because some, it almost feels like you're being gaslighted. You know, it's like you don't know if it's you that took it the wrong way or if that was actually wrong to take it. Like, and so having a good co-founder, having other people on my net, network, having being able to listen to podcasts of other women, like, I, I mean it, it helps a lot because you're like, wow, I, someone said that to me and I totally didn't even think about it in register. But that isn't great. That is bad to have someone say that and do that. Uh, and so- I think at the time, I I was too shocked by the experience. Mm. But I think after now realizing it, that was the worst advice. That was bad. (laughs) Yeah. Um,
1: Another bad piece of advice I think we've received over the years is um, this concept of, like, you know, we're building a company in a very different way than, like, how a traditional, like, food, nutrition company is built. And people have asked us, like, well, why spend any resources on doing things like content, or like why, like, there is no other nutrition company that has that relationship. So, why even try to form that relationship with the customer? And I think we've had to cast a lot of that aside because I think the beauty of having, you know, a company to build is that you can kind of define the rules and define the relationship with the customer and truly like start from scratch. And I think we've had to push a lot of that. Kind of like the, the, this is the right way to do things kind of advice to the side Um in an effort to actually build something different.
0: Which I would imagine can be very difficult to push that to the side mm-hmm. when it's coming from the voices of people who have already been there, even though you have this vision and the vision is the thing you really want to execute on.
1: For sure. And I think because it's so natural, particularly as a first time founder, to constantly doubt yourself, right? It's like, well, I've never done this. They have 20 years of experience. So like, shouldn't I, you know, think about their advice or something? I mean, it's it's very easy to kind of get down that like path and start to question everything. And so I think like, you know, for us, it's like there's just certain North Stars and certain yes. things like we, we didn't want to back down from or like how we knew we were going to build this product that we're like, okay, if we just continue to at least stay focused on that, we don't have to, feel like, you know, that we need to second guess ourselves on certain things.
0: I I really appreciate and respect that. And I feel like I understand it on a somewhat visceral level, because with No Limits, when we first set out to create this podcast, I had a vision. And in my head, there were a lot of people who were saying, try this, try mm-hmm. that. And in my head, I was kind of like, well, I don't want that podcast. And I would exactly. imagine it's the same thing when you're starting a company. You could be at a job tomorrow, And you could be doing what another boss tells you to be doing. Mm -hmm. And of course, along the way, there are going to be compromises and choices that you have to make, whether it's because of an investor or the customer. I mean, really, the biggest thing is what the customer says that they desire. But why create it Mm -hmm. if you're building something that isn't the thing that you desperately want to build?
1: Yeah, exactly. One of our advisors who's um, helped uh, invest and, you know, really mentor a bunch of really interesting companies have gone on to be billion dollar plus. Uh, he, he, you know, took me aside one day and was like, you know what's the the reason why I invest in a founder? And I was like, why? Because you've had many hits. And he was like, because they have such a clear vision of what they want the world to be, what they want that future to be, and they'll push everything against to get there. And I think that's true. I think like, you know, having looked at other founders who've started great, enormous, you know, game changing companies. It's like they really did want the world to be a certain way. And they like fought for it.
0: I love that. Thank you so much, Evelyn and Angela, for joining us. The company is called Yumi and where can people find more information?
1: Yeah. Um helloyumi.com so helloyum dot com or on our Instagram
0: at Yumi. And we'll post some Instagram pictures as well. Um, and thanks for the flowers. They brought me some beautiful flowers from their <laughs> event today, too. Thanks for having us here. Yeah.
1: is great. Thank you. Thank you.
0: All right. It is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our incredible listeners, who's building something of your own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Brittany Cobb. She's the founder of the Dallas-based Flea Style. She was nominated by Chris Hawkins. Here's Brittany to tell you more.
3: Hi, my name is Brittany Cobb, and I'm the founder and CEO of Fleestyle. Fleestyle supports unique style and creative spirits from our brick and mortar and online shop to huge shopping pop-ups, creative workshops, and podcasts dubbed Fridays with Fleestyle. In a nutshell, we strive to cultivate one-of-a-kind style and careers for makers and shakers. I have had more challenges than I can count running this company, but my biggest was making the decision to enter retail. Retail has been a pop-up event business for over a decade, and during that time, I've watched retail really struggle to compete with the saturated online market, and especially Amazon. After a lot of careful thought and evaluation, we decided to take a big, fat chance and open a huge 5,000-square-foot store in a historic Dallas building in an up-and-coming part of town. I figured if we're going to do it, let's do it our way. We sell affordable handmade and vintage items, but we're making it. I think building a healthy shopper base over the past 10 years, coupled with selling something Amazon can't, things you want to touch, try on, feel, really sets us apart. Everything in our store has a story, whether it's the patina of an old brass base or vendor signage telling everything from their bios to current favorite playlists. I really believe we're creating retail, something experiential and magic that can't be replicated online. I'm honored and humbled every day to have a platform to support small businesses and unique style.
0: Congratulations, Brittany. I wish you and FleaStyle continued success. Remember, listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Brittany and how she created her company. And don't forget, if you or someone you know should be featured here, or if you have career questions, shoot me an email at no limits with at gmail.com. And remember, don't forget to check out my new podcast, The Dropout, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, a shout out to our awesome team here that helps make this happen week after week. My producer Taylor Dunn, editor Brittany Martinez, research assistant Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones. We've got the exclusive view behind the table.
3: What is happening here? It's
0: just beautiful chaos. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view.
3: To be honest, I was thinking about asking him for a foot massage and then I I just froze.
1: This is the best gig on TV. And you know, anything can happen. That is what we do here. I'm not going to lie, the chair's a little small for my behind.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The views behind the table Podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.